Welcome to TopCast. TopCast is the This Old Pinball podcast for all things related to pinball. Our emphasis is on interviewing pinball personalities, particularly those that work in the coin-operated game industry. To find TopCast on the Internet, just point your browser to pinrepair.com slash TopCast, and you will find all of our shows, which are available in podcast format for download. Our podcasts are also available through Apple's iTunes, if you're using an iPod-type MP3 device. Tonight on TopCast, we're going to be talking to Dan Forden, who is the sound engineer for Bally and Williams, and also for Stern on many games from 1989 up to 2003. So we're going to be giving Dan a call and talk to him about the games that he worked on. Okay, so I've got Dan Forden on the line. Dan, um, uh, tell me about uh, your early days with pinball. You know, were you, um, I, you know, you were obviously a sound engineer, but how, how did you, how did you come to this point where you were working in the pinball industry? I mean, did you have a, you know, like an early uh, memory of pinball, or did it just kind of like trip into this business? Um, yeah, I did kind of trip into it. Um, it was sort of being in uh, in the right place at the right time. Um, I actually uh, grew up in Maryland, and you know, sort of take it way back. I remember during junior high and maybe high school going down, going into Rockville and going to the little arcade they had in the mall there and playing um, Flash and Superman and I think Paragon, a um, bunch of games like that. And then, you know, that's when Space Wars had just come out, and I think probably Space Invaders was in there, maybe Asteroids. So, like, this is back in the mid to late 70s. Um, and so I thought, you know, I thought that was pretty cool. And and then, you know, as I, as I you know, went through high school, probably didn't go back that much, but then during college, you know, played some video here and there, but didn't really, like, make any sort of, you know, wasn't wasn't obsessed by it. I didn't you know do it all the time, but you know once in a while in passing I would play arcade games and and pinball if it was available. Um, so fast forward a couple years, I ended up in uh, uh, in Evanston going to Northwestern University for a, a uh, master's in computer music, um, which I never actually got, um, but I did all the coursework and um, I knew a number of people that were working for Williams. That's what it was at the time. Um, and they were doing, obviously, pinball machines and arcade video games. And then one of the people, actually, so, so I finished the coursework, and then I was actually uh, doing some apprenticing in a recording studio around the same time, but needed to get a job. And um, I actually interviewed with Bally over that summer, and... Sort of the agreement we had. I mean, we sort of, you know, we hit it off. They wanted, they were very interested in having me come on as a sound engineer because um, I also had some programming experience too. So I could presumably create sound as well as uh, help out with some of the programming, maybe do some tools for the sound department, that kind of thing. Um, and so we're, we were, we sort of had an agreement in principle that once I finished my thesis from a master's degree, that I would go work for Bally. Um, and I had an interview, I think, around the same time with Williams that for whatever reason just didn't go great it's like I don't think I hit it off with the people there as well and um, then of course Williams actually bought Bally so 
I wasn't sure what I was going to do at that point. Um, I went ahead and, and kept kind of pestering them. And by this time, I believe... So, so I knew Chris Graner, who had been working uh, at Williams, and a couple other people there. And then Brian Schmidt came in, came in as, the, uh, as the head of the sound department. And I guess, I don't know if you guys remember, he worked on Space Shuttle uh, and a number of other games. He did a lot of stuff with Black Knight 2000. Um, I think he might have done Bonsai Run as well. So he was running it. So I knew him from the Northwestern Computer Music Program. And so I, I basically at this point was kind of pestering them. And so at one point I think I gave them a demo tape that I'd made, and it was all my weird computer music stuff. And I was in a band at the time, and we did this kind of sort of aggressive funk rock stuff that just did not, you know, leave a good impression on the people that were, you know, that were designing the games and, and would, you know, make the decision on hiring me. So finally, Brian just said, look, just give me a demo of a rock tune, a spy tune, and a country tune. And I kind of got it at that point. It's like, okay, they want idioms, like stuff that's familiar that's going to, you know, bring up kind of familiar feelings and, and, and settings, not this abstract stuff that I was doing on my own. So I went ahead, I went to work and did that and submitted that and they really liked it. And so that's what eventually got me hired. And, um, so I started in, you know, figuring out the systems there, um, playing a lot of games because there were games sitting around in the hall and, you know, the, the latest game in development is sitting there. I don't remember exactly which one it was and, and maybe the one that was just coming off the line that they were, that, that they were finishing uh, production on. I remember I played a lot of Taxi in the in the beginning there. Hmm. Um, so just kind of learning by playing the games and and it, you know learning you know what 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 did Chris do to make a pinball machine pinball machine sound good and what did other people you know what did Brian do to make a pinball machine sound good and just, just sort of learn by playing and, and experiencing it that way and then starting to work with the designers you know what do you want for the game what kind of music. And uh, what kind of sounds? You know, what's the what's the theme of the game, and so on and so on. So I mean, that's sort of kind of a meandering tale, but that's pretty much how I ended up uh, doing, um, you know, working for the for the pinball machine industry and, and working on video games as well. Uh, where did you go to school for your undergraduate, and what did you get your undergraduate in? Um, I went to Oberlin College uh, near it's near Cleveland. It's a small liberal arts school. It also has a conservatory of music. And I originally uh, tried to get in there as a flute player to do performance, and I didn't get in, but I was able to continue studying flute with one of the faculty there and did that for a couple of years. Um, I ended up with a music degree from the college. In other words, I, could, you could get a, I got a Bachelor of Arts in Music History and Theory. So I studied a lot of music at Oberlin, but I also branched out, studied literature, studied math, studied computer science, and then got into computer music there for a small place they actually had, and for the time, they had a pretty advanced computer music department. And so learned, I learned a lot about, you know, what you can, what you could do with computers and sound uh, in that context. And, and then I actually went on and, and was at, uh, I got a sort of a half scholarship to go to graduate school at MIT for one year. And I went there for a year, and then eventually transferred back to, to uh, or transferred over to Northwestern. Hmm. Now, when you were doing the computer work in um, in college, what what type of computers were you using? 
Uh, it was all mainframe at that time. I think VAX, VMS were the the, uh, the computers we worked on uh, at Oberlin, at least. It was all mainframe, so you'd have like a room with a bunch of terminals in it. And I think using the WordStar word processor, I think. And we also learned, um, you know, I learned Fortran, I learned Pascal, learned assembly language. I, I think it was the VAX VMS assembler. And uh, then we did more sort of theoretical stuff. It was a language called Scheme, which is a lot like Lisp, uh, which um, I, I, I guess it's not really object-oriented, but um, it's just a very different kind of, of programming language. Uh, looks completely different than anything, you know, like C or anything like that. And then I kind of taught myself C, which is very similar to Pascal, um, when I was at MIT. Now, but I mean, when you were doing um, music uh, on the computers, what what type of uh, computers were you using to do that? Um, yeah, so in the beginning, the instructor there had created basically um, sort of a virtual frequency modulation instrument. And I don't need to go into details, but frequency modulation is, is a sort of a synthesis uh, strategy for, for creating sound that's very efficient using only two, you know, that, Using two, you can use more, but you can use, use two oscillators to create very complex spectra. And that's actually the basis of the DX7, which is the first digital synthesizer to come out on the market. So this was actually right before that. In any case, so we had this, this, uh, he, he had set up an environment where you could enter, you could design, um, you could design instruments using this sort of, uh, prefab algorithm. Um, and then you could generate, um, Scores, basically matrices of, of, uh, you know, note duration, pitch data, and things like that, and you could, you know, write a piece that way. The funny thing was that, um, you would actually have to batch the job off, and it would go on to like a, a tape somewhere and run overnight, and then like in the next day you'd come back and hear your two minutes of music. It's kind of funny. Um, and then after that, I think my junior year, um, this is when the Yamaha DX7 had come out. The school bought a bunch of those, and they also had a bunch of uh, microcomputers. And so we were getting into programming the the synthesizer in real time from the computer. I don't remember what kind of computer it was actually. Now, when you went to when you went to uh, Williams Valley, um, how was the development environment there? I mean. Uh, you know, you're using you're using a Yamaha sound chip on these soundboards and assembly language to drive it. I mean, how how was the environment on that compared to to the college thing? It was, I would say, a lot more evolved, and it was kind of homebrew at the same time. Um, we had a language that um, I forget what it was called. Well, there there was like a compiler that would take um, we would write scores in basically like a text file. Um, you know, note C3, comma 4 is, you know, play the C3 for four ticks or beats or whatever. Um, and, you know, you, you would lay out your eight tracks sort of on top of each other and just program it that way by text. Um, you know, you could create loops, you would have rests, um, and then that would get um, compiled into the assembler for the, for the uh, board that we used on the, on the, uh, development systems, which is basically what was in the games at that time. And I had a pinball machine cabinet, um, and on the play field was all this, this uh, development hardware that kind of emulated 
um, the hardware that ultimately would get shipped in the game. And so I'd have a PC. I think I started out with a 286 um, and like a Compaq or HP or something like that um, that was hooked up to this, you know, via uh, RS-232 to this development hardware. And so the computer, you know, would run run the compiler. It would it would do its thing, and then and then uh, stuff the stuff that we made into some onboard RAM onto the development hardware, and then I could uh, basically talk to that through a program that that communicated uh, out the port to the hardware, and, and I could make the sound calls happen. So you you didn't have an actual pinwall machine that had this kind of like RAM in your PC that was accessible by the pinball. Instead, it was this developmental hardware. And you could you could trigger each one of the sounds without having to like play the game, right? Correct. Okay. And and um, so you never really actually had a, a machine in your office. You were always using this kind of developmental platform. Right. Okay. Okay. Now, so according to the Internet Pinball Database, your first game was Atlantis. Um, how much of the sound did you do for Atlantis? I did a number of sound effects for that. I think Robin Seaver did the mu- the music and most of the sounds, and I was helping out. And that was like some of the first pinball sounds I did. I think the actual first thing I worked on when I got there was actually Arch Rivals, the uh, arcade basketball game. Oh. Hmm. And how was it working on, arc- you know, like an arcade video game versus a pinball machine, or didn't it matter? Um... I don't know. I think I liked them both. I thought it was harder. I think it was definitely harder to create sound for pinball machines because it was a lot more abstract. I mean, you're trying, you know, I'm trying to make a sound. Well, also, because we're, we're using a Yamaha chip to make all the sounds. It's not like I could sample water and, and that would be sort of a characteristic sound of the game. I had to, like, you know, try to make it work with a, with a Yamaha FM sound with uh, a basketball game where you're seeing people go back and forth, the connection between what you hear and see is a lot more explicit. So they, they sort of automatically kind of work together. And I remember having a hard time making stuff for Atlantis and people thinking that, you know, people saying, you know, those sounds aren't any good. And I was like, well, okay, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> so I just kept trying uh, different things and, and, you know, playing other games and trying to figure out, well, what is, you know, what is cool about that that's not cool about the thing that I was doing. Now, if you needed to sample or, or get a, a digital, you know, version of a voice or something, how, how did they do that? I mean, I understand how you were constructing your scores and, and playing your music and you had certain, and with the Yamaha chip, you had certain voices or certain instruments, as they may call them. But, I mean, how would you, like, do, you know, you know speech? Right. So we had um, the, the first hardware that we used when I was there was the 8-voice Yamaha chip, um, an 8-bit DAC, so you could play an 8-bit drum sample one at a time. And actually, I don't think even I don't think Atlantis even had that. I know Arch Rivals did not have it. So, like doing things like drums, I had to do drums on you know take up one or two tracks on my um, on my on my FM track FM score to uh, do the drums. That was for Arch Rivals, and I believe Atlantis was the same thing. And so, so you got the eight voice Yamaha chip, you got the the eight bit DAC, and we had the, the CVSD chip, which. I don't know if people know about that, but it, um, 
it was a beast to work with, and it was basically um, one. Uh, let's see, I think it was like an eight to one compression. Um, it had a frequency response of up to maybe twenty five hundred hertz. So S's and F's basically sounded the same, and if you could get them to speak at all, um, and the way it worked, I think it was like sort of one bit per sample. So if the incoming signal was higher than the previous sample, then the bit would be a one. If the incoming sample is lower than the previous one, then the bit would be a zero. And that's basically how it encoded it. And I'm sure there's a lot more to it than that, but that was my understanding of it. Um, and so that's what we had to work with. And so we had to do all sorts of like crazy EQ stuff before we converted it, um, just to try to get anything that had high frequency to speak. But um, I remember Chris Graner telling me uh, about the Elvira game where um, she's supposed to say, let's party. And you could never hear anything other than let party because the S on the end of that just wouldn't speak, no matter how hard, you know, and you, we, we try to turn up that part of the, the digital file as much as we could, and still it, wouldn't, it just wouldn't convert. So that was always very frustrating, uh, but challenging. So uh, after Atlantis, you did um, Black Knight 2000. Were you um, a little more experienced? Did things go a little easier? Um, yes and no. I mean... Uh, I still had to make some demanding, you know, Steve, Steve's a pretty demanding game designer, so I had to make it, you know, make him happy. And uh, you're tra- talking about Steve Ritchie, of course, right? Yes, yes. Um, and Brian Schmidt was actually, he was the lead on that game, and he did most of it. Um, but what he asked me to do was see if I could come up with, like, a electric guitar sound on the Yamaha. And so I cranked away for a while and eventually came up with something that I liked pretty well that I felt like was good both for doing, for trying to do power chords and for doing, you know, screaming lead guitar type stuff. And Steve actually wrote uh, a riff for the multi-ball tune. Um, yeah, I think that was the one. And so he gave me that riff and so I took that and, and, and used my, um, my electric guitar and you know, tried to make like a cooking, like heavy metal, screaming lead guitar tune for multiball, um, and that was that was a ton of fun to do. And I was thinking the whole time, I was like, well, what would? I don't know if Steve Vai was even around at the time, but it was like, what would something like that play? What would Eddie Van Halen play over, you know, something like this? And of course, you know, people like that can like come up with it in the moment. I like spent you know a couple days writing, you know, going note for note and trying to do these uh, all sorts of guitar-like gestures with this kind of unwieldy Yamaha uh, 8-voice chip, but it was a ton of fun to, to try to make it work, and um, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty happy with the way it came out. Yeah, no, it came out great, but I, I guess, how do, you, how do you develop these voices? I mean, like, you know, for me, I, I've obviously never worked with this hardware I mean, how do you get a particular sound, or are the sounds pretty much already dictated by the chip? No. Um, Brian, I believe Brian and maybe someone named Bill Parad, uh, one of them or both of them worked on um, an editor that was able to actually talk to the chip and allowed us to, to manipulate the parameters of the chip so we could change, um, I don't know, like uh, modulator amounts and frequencies and 
you know LFO and and all the all the synth all all the internal synth parameters of that FBO1 chip we would we would have control over and what was actually really cool was that not only just like oh, so, so so I would go in and and to this editor and I would like play notes and tweak the uh, the the parameters until I got something that I liked but you could also in the score itself you had access to all the parameters of the of the voice so I could load in a voice and then as part of the music I could I could change parameters on the fly right so if I wanted to do like more of a feedback thing I could like change some modular uh, so, some modulator or carrier ratio in the, in the middle of the music and it would make it would affect a, a, a timbre change I did a ton of that in um, Bride of Pinbutt, and that was a lot of fun. So you had eight tracks. Does that mean you had like eight separate instruments that you could play simultaneously? Right. Single note. Say, oh, you mean so it would play one instrument, one note, but it would do it so quickly that it would, wouldn't would sound that way. Right. Well, like, for example, like uh, maybe the, let's say that multi-ball tune, um, for Black Knight, I would maybe have a bass line might take up two tracks because, like, we would off, often double a, a, a line to make it fatter, right? A little bit of chorusing, a little detune, maybe a tiny bit of delay. And then maybe I'd have three uh, voices for doing, like, a, a, a rhythm guitar. Um, and maybe, let's see, like a cymbal. And then maybe the lead guitar would then be another two tracks doubled. So you up to eight, but it would be it would be something like that. So you had a full you had a full line of effects too with the with the two you had co- with chorusing and delay all available with the chip too. No, you had to you could you could simulate that, but you'd use up like like one thing I um I like to do was um like on all eight tracks let's say I don't want to do like a hit, um I would just like do the hit and then on each track. Um, you know, let let that note ring, and then turn the volume down. Do it again. Turn the volume down again. So it would be kind of like a fake echo, fake reverb. But no, we had no we had no outboard effects or anything like that. Hmm. If we wanted to chorus something, you had to use two voices and detune it. And and was that easy to would, just play with two voices slightly detuned, and that's your chorusing? Is it was that easy to do in the um, in the text file editor? Yeah, I mean that's just like you know, copy that entire track, paste it, and then at the top do like a pitch change. Oh, interesting. Okay, so now, like, let's take uh, the next game that you did was Bad Cats. So you've got these cats, you know, in some parts of the game you've got cat cat noises that are really high pitched. Now, how did you handle something like that? Um, gosh, I don't remember. I think I just. You know where it was appropriate for cats to to make their noises. I think I I, I guess I must have recorded some cats. I don't gosh I don't even remember that. I, I do remember the music for that one. That was a lot of fun. Also to try to do basically jazz, and you know, somewhat based on the lead guitar sound that I that I made. I made what was basically going to end up being my tenor saxophone sound, and um, yeah, I'm just trying to do like you know. Lounge and, or like let's let's call it pseudo lounge or pseudo big band jazz in that one. 
and then like some of it kind of had like a hip hop group, uh, not hip hop, but like um, I don't know what the groove is, but like a very like kind of modern swing sound. Hmm. I guess that's the best way I could describe it. Now, when you need to actually get a to get a voice, like you know, you were talking about Elvira in the Party Monsters, where she says, "Let's party," but you know, like I I have that game, and I and I. I swear I can hear the S in let's. How did they? How did you actually accomplish that, or did, or was it? Am I just like you faked it enough that I, I think I hear it? Well, I think it was. You know, with, again, that was Chris's game, and he. Um, I think maybe he had done it a couple times, and people were maybe saying it just sounds like let party, and so he just had to keep iterating on it, and eventually got it to where it's like. Yeah, and it may maybe depend on what part of the game. Like, if there's something else loud playing and she says it, you might not hear it. I just don't. I don't remember uh, what the context of that is. But that's that was just. I just remember him talking about how frustrating it was, like, to not be able to get that to speak the way he wanted it to. So was that traditional for you guys to use, like, almost like camouflage in the background to kind of like you know to make things you know not as noticeable? Um. It depends, right? I mean, if that was like a situation where it's like her voice is like the only thing there, then, you know, there's no way you can camouflage it. You just have to like play it and that's, you know, that's what's going to sound. Um, in fact, the background, background sounds made it hard, a lot harder to understand, um, the speech because, um, there's so much frequency information missing from the speech from that chip that anything else playing at the same time is going to make it harder to understand. Okay. All right, now, um, you, you also did mousing around um, in, in roller games. Was there, was there any interesting you know, sound stories related to those games? Um, those are both really fun to do. Although i got to say, I, I thought roller games was like probably the worst license ever. It was a really fun game. Right. Now, I, I mean, that, that was a, I thought that was just a ton of fun to play. Now, did you do the theme for roller games? Yeah, that was an interesting story, actually. That was the roller game theme that was sort of dictated to us. And, um, and so that's, that's one of those games. Like, I think um, Black Knight 2000 was the first one that actually did this that had singing in the game. And how would you do that? How do you get how do you get singing? Okay, so you would have a track. I assume it was like sort of double duty um, instrument track and signal track, and then the signal track was able to send something to the hardware to play the appropriate sample. I mean, they had worked out the communication where um, you could send a, a signal in one of the Yamaha tracks that would turn the CVSD chip on and play the right file. So that's what they did in Black Knight 2000, the same thing we did for roller games. And so I ended up with, like, a couple different um, singing files that had the rock and, uh, you know, the roller games, little pieces of the roller games vocals, and then it would trigger them at the right time. Did the same thing, I believe, with Riverboat Gambler. We had Mark Ritchie singing Riverboat Gambler. Now, you talked about the CVSD chip before. 
tell I, I mean what is that what is CVSD what exactly is that chip it's it stands for continuously variable slope detection and that it's just basically a standard part of the you know up until we up until Matt Booty created um, the DCS system that was how we well, actually, that's not entirely true. I think we used an Oki chip for a couple of games that had an 80 PCM algorithm, which was a ton better. Um, but up until that time, the CVSD chip for a couple of years was how we did was was basically the way we would handle speech in games. And it was you know it was not just pinball; it was the video games that we were doing, and it was also the shuffle alley games that you know we'd do a couple of those every year too. What would be the procedure? Like you had Mark Ritchie singing in a Riverboat Gambler, so you you would start, you go to the studio, you record him, and how would this ultimately get turned into this into the CVSD and ultimately you know get played back on the hardware? Give me the whole procedure. So, so what I would do, what I probably did is I is I got the music to a place where it was ready to, for someone to sing over, and I assume I recorded that just into a WAV file or whatever we were using at the time. And then we had a little recording studio with a with a vocal booth and a control room. And I probably, gosh, I don't even know if I did that. I might have just done it on like a tape recorder. Who knows? But event, ultimately, I recorded his voice into, and I, I think this might have been before Pro Tools. I know we had some kind of DigiDesign um, Mac-based uh, digital audio recorder. I believe we recorded it into that. And then I maybe did a little bit of editing on it. And then we had this, um, basically a proprietary piece of hardware, which was like the CVSD encoder. And so you would take the equivalent of a WAV file. I don't, <clears throat> I don't even know if it was at that point. We might have had to downsample it to eight, or down, uh, degrade it down into eight bit, uh, maybe at some particular sample rate as well. Anyway, then you would basically, I think, play this file into the CVSD box, and it would record it as CVSD data. I believe that's how we did it. And it's going back a ways, so I don't, like, my memory is a little bit sketchy on that. But that sounds like what it did, what I ended up doing. And then, you know, either, you know, either I would, like, play, like, um, you know, like a vocal phrase, and then that would become a file. And then I'd play the next vocal phrase. That would become a file, a CVSD file. And then I would bring that over to my computer and, um, you know, do whatever I had to do to compile it into the game, naming it accordingly, so that when I asked, when I called for it, either from a sound call or from, uh, you know, from my piece of music, that it would play at the right time. Does now, that answer your question? Yeah, no, that was, that's that's great. I was kind of wondering what the process is. I know it's a little geeky of a question, but you know, it, it's kind of cool. Um, now, how would so once you get all these sound calls all laid out? What would you hand them out to the game programmer, and then he would just call them as 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 they so desired, or did you have control over this within the game? Um, well, you know, it's a collaborative process, right? So I would go and I'd work in my office for a while and write it. To, you know, if you, if you want to, you know, sort of the typical way I would start up on a game. I mean, we 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 would talk, obviously. You know, me and the programmer. And the and the game designer and the art lead, you know, whoever was whoever was interested or had a stake, we would discuss. You know, this is the approach we're going to take. Um, this is what it should sound like. 
and everyone throws out their ideas, and then I kind of go off and, and come up with some music. You know, here's a shooter groove, here's a main play tune, here's a handful of basic effects, like for bumpers, for targets, drop targets. Uh, what are the things right by the flippers called? I totally forgot. Sling, slingshots. Right. Um, rollovers, things like that. You know, maybe a, maybe a, a lane completion sound, that kind of stuff. Um, so like your ba- like your very basic menu of sounds that would go in the game, and so I would come up with that. Then I would you know print out a thing for the programmer, um, go up you know go to his office and talk about okay this is what you play here, put this here, put this here you know, and then you know sometimes they would say oh I put this thing on here just for you know because I liked it and that's like, you know that was like fine. Um, if I if you know if I didn't like it I probably say i don't like it let's try it something else you know and then i would you know i'd get a bunch of feedback on like what they liked and what they didn't and you know we'd talk about it and then you know it's kind of like at that point now we're kind of in the process of you know creating talking about arguing about it figuring out what's best uh figuring out what works what's fun you know and then it's just kind of a, a creative iterative process from then on well, did you ever, you know, all the, your sound programs were eventually stored on EEPROM. Was there ever an issue of where you where you just ran out of out of EEPROM space? You know, ran out of space to store what you wanted to do. All the time, <laughs> always, even today, right? And I'm doing games for PS3 and Xbox 360. You got a memory budget. Um, you got to make decisions about, you know, what's worth the memory. What's worth the CPU crank? Um, you know, what can I, what can I degrade over here so I can fit this other thing in? I mean, all the time. Yeah, but I mean, was it worse back then, or is it worse today? I don't know. I think it's about the same, probably. <laughs> I think it's probably it was probably worse back then. I mean, come on, we we're dealing with like I think our rivals had like 250k. <laughs> I mean, now we're like on on. You know, some of the stuff we're doing now, it's like, well, we've got, like, 16 megs of memory. Huh. Which doesn't, yeah, it doesn't even seem all that much today. Yeah, but now we're like, yeah, but we also have to play, you know, we have to have room for 10,000 sounds because that's, you know, we're all, we've got all these characters, we've got all this music, we've got all these, uh, you know, every character has their own voice, you know. So I mean, the expectations have gone up, gone way up as well. Okay, so now you did the sound for for Harley Davidson, the Bally Harley Davidson too. Um, you know, so you, you know, that's got some motorcycle sounds in that. So what, what was the process to get you know like revving motors or whatever in, into the game? Yeah, that was insane. Uh, someone, I forget who who designed that game. That yeah. game had no ramps. Right, right. It was a. a, a um, it was competing with the Gottlieb street level design, which meant that it was kind of more of a simplistic design game. It was a single layer, no no habit trails, no ramps, nothing like that. It was a, a basic game. Yep. Um, so I, I forget who did it. It might have been Ward Pemberton, maybe, or someone had arranged with um, a Harley dealer out in Palatine, which is a suburb of Chicago that I would go out there and be able to record some of their stuff. So I went out there. I think I had a, may have, may have had a DAT recorder at that point, something like that. Um, and so there was a guy who was a Harley guy, and he was, you know, 
got a bike out and turned it, you know, turned it on, revved it a couple times. We did some drive-bys, and then we wanted to get some, you know, steady-state engine stuff. And so I got on the back of his bike, and he didn't wear a helmet. And I was like, well, I probably shouldn't wear a helmet either. Like, that would be kind of wussy if I asked to wear a helmet. And so, like, holding on, like, the back with one hand and holding a microphone down by the by the pipe, and he went, like, 90 miles an hour. It was like my it was like my land speed record up to that point, and like really kind of dumb actually, but it was fun. <laughs> was this just on regular streets? Yeah. Hey, but weren't you getting wind noise too? Yeah, we got a lot of wind noise, but I was also holding the, the microphone back, and those pipes are super loud. I don't remember if I got anything completely useful from that particular part of it. And and whether we would have needed that anyway, I think the you know some of the best stuff was just the idle at the beginning of the game um, because that was like I was able to get that pretty isolated. And there were some drive-bys that were pretty cool that I I think I used in like the jackpot or something like that that I thought worked out pretty well. Huh. All right, now the next game up was uh, Machine uh, the Bride of Pinbot. Um, now you said you you know like. Who who was the woman that 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 did the voice calls for that? I don't remember her name. I was playing in a in a sort of a contemporary music ensemble uh, around that time, and we were playing this pretty ambitious piece that called for a couple of sopranos to uh, to sing along, and it was she was one of them, and so I just contacted her and had her come in. I had written another, like, okay, so there's this one part where she comes alive, right? I had written um, a little piece for that originally and brought someone else in to sing it, and that got um, that got the thumbs down. I said, try it again. So I rewrote it a little bit, uh, made it more like operatic, like the faster notes, basically, um, and then got this other singer, and that seemed to do the trick. Now, when you got thumbs down, was this Python that that was given the thumbs down? Um, might have been. Yeah, I think definitely, but I think there was probably other people too. And and was Python pretty demanding to work for compared to the other designers? Um, you know, he would be like, he he would fixate on a couple different things that like you know were 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 very important for him and for his you know for. His, how he saw the game and the important moments, but um, well, for one thing, I think I only did music on that game. I don't know if I did that many actual sound effects. I forget. I think John Hay did a bunch of the sound effects, and uh, Rich Carstens recorded a lot of the speech. Um, that actually was one of the was actually Harley Davidson and that were some of the most fun I had writing music for games because I was kind of. I mean, I, I was kind of like left to my own devices, just to do whatever, and they seemed to like it. And so I came up with a main play tune for the Bride of Pinbot, and, and Python really seemed to like it, so I think at that point he just kind of let me go and do whatever I wanted to do. Typically, who was the designer that was that let you have the you know the longest leash, and who and who had you know, who had you on the shortest leash? It's a tough question. They were like different at different times. Like for certain things, it's like if it wasn't if it wasn't making it, then it didn't matter who it was. They would let me know. 
and so I'd, I'd need to, you know, rethink it or have a different strategy. Um, Steve's pretty demanding, no doubt. Steve Ritchie. Yeah. I mean, I mostly worked with him. Um, mostly him, actually. I only did one game with Pat Lawler, and that was Safecracker, which is like, you know, sort of way late in the whole pinball thing. Um, Brian Eddy. He he's he could be very, very specific and very um, picky about certain things. All right, now you also did uh, Party Zone and Getaway High Speed. Um, you know, now Party Zone was was Party Zone a pretty you know interesting you know game to do. Yeah, that was a lot of fun, and I um, I brought like the uh, the Captain Bizarre guy. Right. He's actually someone that. Um, went to my high school back in Maryland that ended up out in Illinois somehow, and I sort of reconnected with him. And he, I just thought he was like the perfect guy to do that voice. I think he did a great job. Now, when you brought somebody in, like, you know, the girl you were talking about that did the singing and um, and, and your buddy from, from Maryland, did Williams typically pay these people, or did they just do it because, wow, I'm going to be in a, and I'm going to be in a pinball machine. That's really cool. Um, they got paid something. They didn't get paid that much, but it was. There was a time when it was like it, that. That it wasn't really cool to like bring someone in and pay them to do this. It was sort of. Uh, I don't know. Because we had done so much of just like oh just get you know whoever down the hall. Actually, we had a lot of we had a number of people that worked there that were really talented, like Ed Boone and Mark Ritchie. Both had great voices for pinball stuff, and they did a ton of stuff for our game. So the thinking was like, well, we've got these people here that can do it. Why should we pay someone to come in? But you know, to get a wider variety and actually some real, some sort of authentic acting skill, you do need to do that, and, and you're going to raise the production levels. Of the games, and then when we when we went into starting to do movie licenses, and now we're getting like Patrick Stewart or you know people from uh, characters from uh, Indi- Indiana Jones, um, then you know then be- then it became precedent to get people then that were that actually were really talented voice actors to come in and provide voices for the games. Now on Getaway. You know, you've got um, like a ZZ Top song in it. How uh, how hard was it to create or recreate that using the Yamaha synthesizer voices? Um, well, it was you know, it's not a super complicated song. I remember having a hard time really nailing the lead that comes in, and I don't think I ever really did, just because there's some nuances that they do on the guitar that I just couldn't like make work. Um, I don't know. I think it. I think it went okay. I always felt like I did better, like writing my own stuff than trying to cop another tune and make it work in um, in in sort of pinball land. Because I did. I had to, I did that tune. I did um, pinball wizard and um, rock and roll part three for the. Um, Super High Impact game. It's a song that they often play at halftime of basketball games. Right, right. Um, 
you know, we licensed that for the super high impact uh, football game. And I mean, they're passable, but I don't know. I always felt more comfortable just writing my own stuff, and and because then I could take, then I could like write stuff that was, I guess, more tailored to what the the instruments could do. Right. Right. Yeah, you could write stuff that the the hardware could take advantage of instead of kind of reverse engineering songs. Right. And like for example, I remember just kind of cringing at the pinball wizard thing because I needed to, you know, we didn't have singing for it, so I had to do the vocal line with an instrument. And I just never like I just never felt really comfortable with the way that sounded. Now you did uh, Star Trek Next Generation, and this was a change in hardware. You now had the DCS platform. Maybe we should talk about the development of the DCS platform and 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 how big the changes were from um, you know from a, you know a music engineer's point of view. Uh, it was great. Um, it was what any audio guy would have want, would have been wanting for years. And uh, Matt Booty, that was his brainchild. And he and an engineer named Ed Keenan worked together tirelessly to bring that to light. Um, and it was not without its share of controversy because there were some people that didn't want to use it, that didn't want the change, and didn't want to take the risk because it was a risk. Um, but, you know, they persevered and eventually it caught on. And people, you know, who isn't going to want to be able to have orchestral music coming out of their pinball machine? I mean, that, that, that kind of thing, you know, was hard. You couldn't hold that down forever. Um, we could actually write what I call real music uh, for a change, you know, with, with, you know, using whatever is out there to make sound, you know, whether it's a sample library or, like, the latest synthesizer. Um, all of a sudden, anything was possible as far as what kind of music you could bring in. At the same time, it brought a whole new set of challenges, because um, now every piece of music is taking up a discrete chunk of memory, whereas before you had an instrument that all you needed was some like really tiny bits of data to make it go. Now you're actually every piece of sound is using up sample memory, and so you know we had to start using a lot more memory and. Of course, the designers are always wanting to put more and more and more stuff in the games. I mean, tons more speech, more music. You know, the games, the rules and the games themselves got a lot more complicated, so you needed just a lot more material. So, I mean, yeah, it was cool. It was absolutely cool. I never wanted to turn back, but there was, you know, you still had the challenge of, you know, there's all this stuff that I need to get done, and uh, this is the, my finite amount of memory, so how do I wedge it in there? And so the solution for a lot of it was to start writing you kind of architect the music in a certain way such that you can repeat a section and then have an ending that moves you into the next section and so you write these little modules like little loops basically and then you can string them together in like a kind of like a playlist fashion now what when you said you said there was risks and you said there were some people that didn't want this hardware why you know what were the risks and why would some people not want this because my understanding is is now instead of having like you said having um you know a limited number of voices or whatever everything was basically 
you know, uh, converted into like an MP3 format and just, you know, and, and, and basically the hardware hit playback, right? Yeah. Um, well, okay, so, I mean, it sounds great, right? But then the realities were, as it was being developed, I think there was one, I think it was, I think Indie was the first game that actually used it. Um, in fact, I think Twilight Zone was going to use it, but then didn't. So right. Indie was the first game to use it, and so this is like the hardware is in beta. The hardware and the software is in beta, and it's not totally, you know, all the kinks aren't worked out, and I think Brian Eddy is like sitting in there one night programming his game, and the game is quiet, and nothing's happening, and all of a sudden, this like, you know, 90 decibel shriek comes out of the sound system, and just scares the pants off him. And, and it's like a horrible, like, a horrible sound is just coming out of it, and it's like, that kind of thing is like bad PR for try, for trying to you know get your get a new sound system up and running, and it's just one of the things that happens along the way. Obviously, you know whatever bug it was was found and it went away, but like that made people be like, oh, I don't want that in my game. Yeah. Well, but now you've got voice, you know, real voice samples. I mean, and, and, and things are really, I mean, you know, you don't have that problem with the S's and the F's anymore, or at least not to a large degree. So, I, you know, I just can't, I, I can't imagine anybody not wanting that. Yeah, and it, well, it's, but people, right. But people's priorities are often, you know, different, and they're used to the way things work. You might be introducing a cost element that they don't they don't want. Um, yeah, I mean, like some people have been like extremely successful with the old hardware, so why you know they're, they're it would be nice, but that it's not absolutely necessary for them. It just wasn't necessarily a priority, and I'm sure there was some politics going on too. So, like for Star Trek: The Next Generation, they did um, you, you know you um, you had the actors actually. I, I guess come in and, and record these parts. Um, I actually flew out to LA and recorded them at a at a, a recording session where they were. Uh, you're familiar with ADR or looping. That's the process by which actors will go back into the studio to record the lines that, for whatever reason, they couldn't use the um, the live audio from the take. Okay. So they'll go in and essentially lip sync their own dialogue. Huh. So there, there was a bunch. You know, this is in the middle of production for some one of the seasons of the show, and so they and they all live. I'm sure they all live in L.A. close by, and they had over this week of time um, scheduled themselves. So, you know, they they scheduled to come in and and replace their dialogue, and so I was able to tag along at the end of those sessions and get them to record uh, the, the script that we had created for um, for the game. Now, Star Trek Next Generation also had a home ROM with some custom speech in it. Did I mean, were they doing this recording at the same time for that, too? Yeah, I think once I had recorded my the stuff I needed to get, I told them, hey... You know, because I think a lot of them were actually getting a machine out of it. I said, hey, you can record anything you want, and we'll put it in your game. Hmm. And so a bunch of them did that. And was there different, actual different sound ROMs for different actors? I don't think so. I think we maybe just made one 
that had all of it in there. And maybe maybe Dwight Sullivan, the programmer, he might have programmed it to like just you know for the um, you know the Patrick Stewart game would play his stuff when you did whatever button combo at the beginning or hit the flipper buttons because I remember there was something simple where you could just cycle through them. Hmm. Okay. All right. Now, when th- this was like a new thing for you to go out and record these these voices of the of the actors on on, on site. I mean, was this was this a, a I mean, was this more fun or was this a, kind of a drag? It was fun and scary because you know, sort of meeting these extremely popular uh, television and movie actors and. I didn't want to make a mistake, and I didn't want to look stupid. So, yeah, it was kind of scary, but it was it was cool. It was it was definitely stressful, but it was fun at the same time. Okay. Now, the next game after Star Trek that you did was Pinball Circus with Python. Tell me tell me about that game, and tell me about the sounds for it. Um, that game was was a lot of fun. Uh, we never finished it. Um. Yeah, it was it was it was insane. I think there was some frustration because there was like I think we kept changing programmers and there was um I don't think there was clear design direction on like where some of the rules were going. Um but I managed to create, you know, pieces of music for each level cuz there were a bunch of different play fields that you would get to. Um yeah, I mean, it's just an incomplete, right? There was, although one thing that was really fun about that was I did like a classical guitar piece for, um, I guess it was a trapeze woman or something like that. But yeah, it just never, it never really got out of like an alpha stage, I don't think. I mean, just like it, um, it never had, it never really came together. It was really cool though. So this is a completely, you know, a non-licensed game, a completely original game. So you basically got to sit down and write all the music with with whatever instruments you're comfortable with. Was this a lot more work? You know, it's interesting. I actually started that game with the Yamaha system and wrote some stuff. And then once we moved over to DCS, I rewrote it. With, you know, cause I had, uh, you know, at that time I was using a K2000 and I had a couple other synths and, you know, some kind of rudimentary orchestral libraries and things like that. So I tried to do sort of orchestral stuff. Um, and then like there was a jazz piece for the elephant, I think, or the zebra, I forget. And then like a, this sort of punk rock or heavy metal rock thing for the crazy, uh, clown at the very top evil clown guy was python really doing a nice job with this game in in your opinion i i don't know i don't uh, it's it seemed like he wasn't completely focused on it and that it and i don't really know what happened to it um because it, it could have been i mean maybe it was just something that was too hard to like really engineer i mean cuz i think there were there were definitely some issues with what can you actually do with a vertical like a vertically oriented pinball machine like it was i mean maybe there was something about like these really small play fields with small flippers hitting the ball 
and you can't really keep it in any one place for very long and then it goes to, I don't know I, I don't know what the problem was um, but I think there were aspects of it that just kind of became too difficult to maintain um, design direction and probably engineering and hardware Okay, so now you did a game uh, with with Brian Eddy, The Shadow. Um, once again, did you have to go out and get um, and get the actors to get to get their voices and get their voice calls? Yeah, I went out to L.A. and recorded Penelope Ann Miller and Tim Curry and John Lone. I think those were the three, and um, that was a pretty fun game to do and. Yeah, you know, I I think he like I think Brian, I mean Brian gets like, you know, he he he's pretty demanding and will will like stick to his guns on a lot of stuff, but but I felt like he liked, you know, on balance this the music that I wrote, you know, from the get-go and then if there was stuff that he didn't like, he would it would be like little aspects of stuff. I don't think I ever had to throw anything out with him. Were you less intimidated by the actors in this movie than you were in, say, Star Trek? Yeah, I think I was sort of, I'd already done, I had kind of been there, done that at that point, so it wasn't as, as stressful a situation. Now, with No Fear, how was, you know, that was a licensed theme, but it was kind of like a loose license. I, I mean, you, you, had a, you probably had a lot more space to roam sound-wise, right? Yeah, um, I collaborated with Vince Ponarelli on that game. He wrote most of the music. I think I wrote maybe Main Play and, um, gosh, maybe a couple other tunes. And then I focused on the speech and the sound effects for that. Um, I seem to recall we recorded a friend of Steve Ritchie's dirt bike for that game, uh, for some of the dirt bike stuff. And um, Greg Freres did a lot of the voice for it, too. Who did the skull talking? That was Steve. Oh, really? It was Steve, huh? Okay. Yeah, and then I processed it. What, to add some edge to it? Uh, yeah, I think I pitched it down, added some reverb and some probably some some chorusing or something like that. Now, when you're doing this this sound processing, are you doing this in the in the in the Williams studio or right at your desk? Um. At that time, I was working from home. I was a contractor. So I had a home studio, um, you know, with, I forget what I was using at that point, probably Pro Tools, also uh, probably Sound, maybe SoundForge at that point. I, I'm not sure. And we were also, in the early days of DCS, we actually had a proprietary piece of software that we would record um uh, we, I guess maybe we would process our files into it that it would, because then it would spit it out at a very specific sample rate that we needed. But then I think eventually we were able to just use SoundForge to do that. For Attack from Mars, um, where, now who was doing the, the, the voices for, for Attack from Mars? That was mostly people around the company. Tim Kitzrow, who did a lot of voice work for us over the years, we hired him. He was a couple, I think probably a couple characters. He was definitely the general. Um, and he could do, he could do, lo he could do a lot of different things with his voice. So he probably played a number of characters. But we had Vince, I believe, played the French guy. 
Um, God, I get that one confused with Revenge from Mars. Um, I believe Sal DeVita did the Italian voice. You know who he is? No. He's longtime uh, video game guy. He worked on, I believe, uh, Total Carnage, NBA Jam, NFL Blitz. Um, longtime Midway video game guy. Um, uh, most recently worked on TNA Wrestling. Um, anyway, he did the Italian guy. Um, gosh, who else was? What other countries did we uh, stereotype in that in that game? Uh, well, the uh, UK, uh, Italy, France. Okay, so UK. That was a woman that from the sales department. I think her name was Rachel. I forget her last name. USA was probably the general. That would have been Tim. So you're just again reaching around, reaching around the Midway Williams and Bally, just picking people. Pretty much. Although again, Tim, we hired Tim Kithrow. He came in. Now, what about on Safecracker? Who did all? Who was the voices in that game? We hired. Let's see. I'm thinking of maybe the German. God, I don't even remember. Well, like like the guard. You know, who was the guard? I don't remember. And the woman, and the woman, you know, Candy, you know that that woman. We probably hired someone to do that, but again, I don't remember who that was. I gosh, I wonder if I even have an archive of that somewhere. I'd have to go listen to it, and maybe that would that would uh, kickstart my memory. I remember the music. Writing the music for that was actually a lot of fun. It's good music. I like I like the Safe Cracker stuff. Thank you. It what? Uh, how was it working for Pat? Um, great. I mean, we got along fine. I think he liked what I did. I don't know if that game did very well. Well, in the collector market, after the fact, I mean, it's a, it's a, you know, a game sells for a lot of money. I mean, it's, it's in high demand. But I think at the time, you know, at the time it being a Pat Lawler game, you know, there was high expectations and, and it didn't, you know, they only sold, you know, like 1,200 copies or something like that. Yeah, and maybe, you know, it was a kind of a novel idea and people weren't sure, you know, how to approach it. Right, right. Okay, so now you did the big game. You did Medieval Madness. What uh, what was your responsibility on that game? Um, all the music, all the sound effects, um, and, you know, at least recording the speech. That one's got a great story behind it, though. A friend of mine um, was producer at Second City, uh, the comedy place in Chicago. And she got uh, my wife and I tickets to go see a show, and we saw it, and it was absolutely hilarious. And, you know, we're starting a sort of production meetings or pre-production meetings on Medieval Madness, and, hey, what if we got some, like, really genius comedy writers to come in and write some stuff for us, and maybe they could do some of the voices, too. And they liked that idea, and so we hired... Um, Scott Adsit and uh, Kevin Dorf, who were some of the main guys at the show that we saw. Um, Scott Adsit is, is like, I don't know if you know, if you watch 30 Rock, he's like the producer on the show, the bald guy. Hmm, okay. And he's been in a number of movies. Um, and so he and Kevin Dorf, um, who I think is a, has been a writer for Conan for a long time, um, they, you know, 
they met with us, got the idea of the games. Like you got these damsels that get rescued by the dragon. You've got the the you've got the um, the evil king. You've got all these barons and lords and stuff. And and there's all this all this stuff going on. And um, you know what can you do with that? So they went away and came back and wrote like a bunch of material, a bunch of jokes, did some character stuff. Scott Adzit ended up doing like a bunch of voices. Um, King of Pain, he was like the the evil guy, right? Right, right, right. Right. So he did him, and he did a bunch of other voices, and they could do a lot of lot of vocal stuff. And um, Tina Fey was one of the people that was at S- Second City at that time, and she came in, and we recorded her for some of the voices. She was like, you know, I, uh, there was like the jousting competition. She's like. I'll bet four chickens on the Holstein or something like that. I mean, some of those lines, huh. that was her before she was anyone, right? Uh, which is really cool. And then there was a number of other people from Second City that came in to do different voices. And um, I think they just wrote, they wrote great material and their, their voice acting is really good. And I think it really helped make that game a ton of fun. Now, why didn't they do that? You know, have um, you know professional comedy writers come in and do any any other? You know, use this methodology on any other games? Oh, uh, they did on think I think on No Good Gophers, but I think that was um, I think that was the only one aside from that. It's like you've either got a, like a licensed game that you know kind of comes preloaded with you know famous talent um, I mean yeah no it was a great idea and I think it paid off in that in that one for sure yeah I mean it must be great to be associated with you know what some people would consider the best pinball of the last 20 years you know really well I mean there's yeah I mean a lot of people think medieval madness is is, is awesome you know I mean that that's it's definitely a great game yeah all right now, uh, Revenge for Mars. Again, you got a, you have a, to, you've moved to Pinball 2000, and it's a different hardware platform. It, did things change when you went to this platform? Um, well, I was still using the same hardware. I think we managed to get a little bit more memory because there were a lot of modes. Yeah, I think I had to. You know, it needed a lot more sound than a regular pinball machine. Then you had stuff on screen that you had to represent. But all, pretty much a lot of the stuff that happened on screen, for the most part, was basically an outgrowth of what was happening on the play field. So if you shoot a ball up a ramp and you need a completion sound or a, a ramp entry sound for the ball going up the ramp, that's the thing that's likely going to trigger something on the screen. And so the sound is going to be related. Um, or it's going to be the same sound. Like if you shoot a ball up a ramp and it blows up a spaceship, then that's the sound of the ball going up the ramp. It did give us the opportunity, though, to do like these kind of elaborate theatrical introductions to all the different game, all the different modes. And so that was a chance to, you know, it was it was more stuff that we needed to do, little musical intros, or like sound effect things, or like aliens saying funny or stupid things i mean so yeah there was more probably more choreography possibilities if you hold the ball and then you can do 
you know, I mean, think of like what you used to do with a dot matrix display. Now you can do like a full video display, and it's just a lot more elaborate, and therefore you can do more detail. And having audio support that is just going to uh, make it that much more powerful and entertaining and engaging. Now, so the development tools, because this is running all running on basically on a PC, the development tools weren't any easier to use, or you know, made life easier for you in any way. Um, you know, for me, that I was not as affected by that because I was still, you know, writing my music and, and you know, creating and editing my sound effects. And in, in, that's the great thing about DCS. I could use commercially available tools to do all my asset creation. At some point, I have to run that stuff through the proprietary data compression algorithms and then whatever I need to do to assemble, them, assemble all the stuff into the co- coherent uh, uh, files that, that get loaded into the game, but then they get loaded in and, and the programmer, and the, then the programmer can play them from the game. Now, was DC, the DCS compression, was that pretty much like an MP3 compression? Um, I don't know that much about how that worked. A lot of that was done by Matt. Ed Keenan and a guy named Rich Karstens who helped a lot with optimizing some of the performance. I know that there was some uh, Fourier analysis of the of the frequency spectrum, and then some manipulation of the frequency bands to throw out unneeded data. But it was not lossless; it was lossy compression. And we had we we would play tricks like you could get away with um, compressing speech data a lot, but you would never want that speech data to be played by itself, because it had, because by compressing it a lot, you would create these artifacts that would sound like birds or something in there. I mean, it was like an audible artifact. However, if you were playing music at the same time, music that would have been compressed at a lower rate, um, because you don't want to degrade the quality of the music. Um, you wouldn't hear you wouldn't hear any of these artifacts. So as long as as long as most of the speech is being played over other sounds, you'd be fine. And if there was ever uh, a situation, a circumstance where you're playing a speech call, you know, in silence or over very little background, then you would make sure that you would not compress that one very much, because then you wouldn't because so you wouldn't hear the artifacts. And, and you had complete control over the compression of the individual tracks? Yes. Um, and it's not really tracks, it's just individual sound files. So we would do all our, all our music in mono. Um, so it's just, you know, the music would be basically be comprised of, you know, maybe 6 to 12 individual wave files, and then you would run... Uh, I, I would build, uh, you know, make a script file that would have, you know, the the compression algorithm and a couple parameters, and then the name of the file, and then it would create it, create the output from that. Now, when when um, Bally Williams, you know, basically finished pinball, they were done with 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 pinball. How did that affect you? I mean, how you know? Were you under contract, or were you actually there when Black Monday came? Um, I was not under, let's see, I guess I was under contract, but I was working from home again, and I was um, probably in the middle of working on a bunch of different video games. So, I mean, it was sad. 
um, and kind of surprising in a way, just because of the, the success of Revenge from Mars. I guess we had thought that you know we're still going, but um, yeah, it was very sudden. Now, you shifted over to Stern, and you did sound for Simpsons Pinball Party in 2003. How how did you make that transition, and how was the sound? I mean, it's not DCS. It's it, it's maybe a step backwards, or maybe it isn't. You, you, you tell me. Um, it was definitely harder to work with, and it was... Um, it's a sample. It was a sample playback um, soundboard. Yeah, it was a lot. It, there was a lot more work in just sort of getting to square one than you would if you were using DCS, where square one's already in front of you, and then it's just a matter of like writing the music that you want to do. Um, now, for that pinball machine, all I did was the main play tune, and I had to actually discontinue that project. Um, fortunately, Chris Graner was available and interested and willing to take it over. And so we worked something out between me, him, and Stern, and so he basically took the ball and ran with it. So are you saying for the Stern system, you didn't like just sit down and, and write the songs on any available instruments that, that you cared to use and, and, and ran it through some processor to get it onto the soundboard? No, okay, so the way that system worked, it's a sample playback system. So... I created a library of sound samples that um, I thought I needed um, to do the Danny Elfman version of the Simpsons theme. And I'm sure there were some requirements, and I wanted to loop some of them, and I had to do whatever technical requirements to make the samples sound good. Um, and then I believe I wrote a score, probably very similar to the kind of score uh, that we used to do for um, the Yamaha chip, where you explicitly turn notes on and off and can apply a pitch bend and, and loop sections and all that stuff um, in, a, in a text file, basically, that got compiled and then I could play on a development. And I had a development. Um, I actually, you know, I went over there and talked to them and they showed me the game. And what I ended up doing was I did sort of a first, I did like kind of a first pass of, you know, here's the main play tune. Here are a collection of sound effects that are going to that are going to be applied to very, some very specific events in the game. And so I kind of did like the first, the foundation of the audio for that game. And then Chris kind of took it over, and um, you know, used what he wanted, and then created the rest of on his own. So this was this was a lot a lot more work than the DCS thing. Um, yes, definitely. Yeah, for again for Square One, you have to. Come out. You have to do do a bunch of work to create a bunch of samples that will work, that that you then will trigger to make the music. Now the samples. I mean, how do you create the samples? The samples weren't created the same way as DCS. Like you created, you know, sound files, right? So I would have, you know, I, I have a bunch of synthesizers and orchestral libraries and things like that. So I would play a couple trumpet notes, a couple trombone notes, a bass, you know, bass notes and sample those into SoundForge and then do whatever massaging I needed to in there, whether I needed to make it loop well or not. Um, and then probably, uh, I'm sure there was a sort of an assembly and compilation phase, um, before I could then load it into the hardware and play it. 
So you couldn't actually just record anything and end up sampling that into into the machine. No. No. There'd be no way to do that. No. Well, I mean, you could, but um, I think you would like run out of memory in like ten seconds. Oh, okay. So that's really what it came down to was was how all this stuff got compressed. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't remember the specs on how much memory it had, but um, clearly it was because um, you had to you had to you know for all your sound effects you had to be able to save room for those as well as speech. Um, and I don't remember, you know, how that was handled. Because, you know, I never did the speech for that game. But uh, I would guess you could probably downsample it, and maybe th- maybe there was some compression algorithms as well. I just don't remember. Now, you haven't done any pinball work since The Simpsons, is that correct? Correct. And are you still working in the gaming industry? Yeah, I work for Warner Brothers Games, and I'm working um, working on the next Mortal Kombat. Oh, okay, okay. And how's that going? Uh, very well. It's going to be really great, and there's a ton of stuff in there. I can't really talk much about it, but, um, yeah, I'm working on that, and it's a lot of fun, and, and doing a lot of different things and new things that, that I hadn't done before. Um, as far as getting in and actually implementing a lot of the sound in, in into the game itself, so that's pretty exciting. Now, why didn't you do any more pinball work for Stern? At that point, um, I took I, I came uh, in house to Midway and ran the sound department. And so that would have been a conflict of interest, right? I guess, but really it was a conflict of time at that point. Oh. I, I, I didn't think that I could devote enough time to, you know, to give them what they needed. Right, right. I mean, if, if I hadn't, if Chris hadn't been around, I probably would have found a way to do it. But um, it, just, it just worked out better for everyone that he was able to take it over. All right, cool. Is there anything that I forgot to ask or anything I left out or anything you'd like to add? Um, I don't know. That's uh, covered a lot of territory there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, cool. Well, thank you, Dan Forden. Uh, thank you very much uh, for talking to us tonight on uh, on Topcast. Really appreciate it. Um, uh, you know, we'll keep an eye out for Mortal Kombat. How much of the sound are you doing for that? Um, we got a, at least uh, one, two, three, four, five people working on it. Okay. And there's going to be more. Because we're gonna have to, we're gonna have to ramp up. And what platform is this on? This will be for um, PS3 and Xbox 360. Oh, oh, cool. Well, again, thank you very much. I really appreciate your time. All right. All right. Thank you. I'd like to thank Dan Forden, sound engineer for Bally Williams and Stern Pinball, uh, for coming on Topcast with us tonight. Really appreciate his time, and it was a great interview talking to him about uh, development of sound in these all these pinball machines.
TopCast is a podcast covering pinball and the coin-operated amusement industry. It's available free of charge on iTunes and additionally available for download at pinrepair.com slash TopCast. TopCast is produced by Clay Harrell. Production assistance by The Corn. This is Lawrence Brown reminding you that TopCast is copyrighted 2010 by pinrepair.com.